0: So this morning, hear these words from the book of Colossians. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all the wisdom through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover peace, through Christ our Lord. Amen. So as Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing in the book of Colossians, he begins with that idea of clothing yourself, clothing yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And understand that in the book of Colossians, for Paul, this has been a significant metaphor. His ideas here are that we ourselves are not righteous, but that through Christ we can put on clothing, the righteousness of Christ's royalty and righteousness, We can wear his clothes. Uh, A little bit like the emperor has no clothes, right? Because it's not ourselves who are righteous, it is Christ. But the idea, if you want to think about it this way, is Paul is saying, dress for success. Or even fake it till you make it. That over time, and through the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, as we become more like what God wants us to be, First, we are clothed in Christ, protected by being able to be seen that way by God. And then the task is to become. So when we confess the words of the Apostles' Creed and we say the forgiveness of sins, understand that we begin with what Christ is doing or what God is doing. God forgives. And then Paul is saying, and then you become that. Not that you can, not that you innately are compassionate, or kind, or humble, or gentle, or patient, or know how to forgive, but that as you witness God doing it, and you put on those actions yourself, you will become it. So think of that this morning as we go forward. When we talk about the forgiveness of sins, I thought what we really need is to have the greatest hits, the playlist of God's greatest moments of forgiveness are things that are very clear where God says, "I." Am, God shows how God is forgiving. And hopefully that will inspire us to become, to put on that clothing and to pursue it as God would pursue it. So with that in mind, I'm going to tell a few stories, a few of God's greatest hits of forgiveness. Number one, let's begin with the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. If you remember this, it comes from the Gospel of John. And what happens is is that Jesus is teaching in the temple. As he's teaching, there's a group of Pharisees and Sadducees who bring a woman before him, and they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? Now, what John makes very clear is that what happens next is that they are testing Jesus. This isn't really about the woman. This is about testing him. Their fight is with him. And so they come and they're trying to test him on this. And they're trying to see if they can bring a charge against him. Right? Will he break the law of Moses or the law of the Old Testament so that they can bring a charge against him? Jesus' response is, first of all, he doesn't respond he bends down in the, to the ground, right? He bends down, and he starts writing there with his finger. We don't know what he writes. Maybe it doesn't even matter. But he takes his time, and when he stands back up, he says probably some of the most famous words in the whole Bible, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. And yet again, then Jesus bends back down, and he continues to write, with his finger on the ground. And then one by one, the crowd leaves. Actually, what John says is that the crowd starts with the elders, not the Sadducees or the Pharisees. It's a different group of people. But the elders, the wisdom makers, the people of the community, who can kind of take in everything that is happening right now, I imagine, and say, I'm not going to be a part of this. And so they leave, and then one by one, the rest of the crowd leaves as well, until it's just Jesus and the woman standing there. And he says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one to condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I cont- condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. So in the lesson here about forgiveness, a few things about the nature of forgiveness that God is showing us here. Number one, understand that, great, that forgiveness starts with grace. Forgiveness is a process. We might want to be able to say, I forgive you, and then it's done. But the reality is, is that forgiveness is a process. It starts with certain things. It moves through other things like repentance and penance. And, and through that, forgiveness happens. But it begins with grace unmerited favor. I have to assume that this woman is actually guilty, right? And when Jesus says to the crowds, who are you without sin? He's also saying, who are you who are not guilty? And one by one, they all acknowledge they are guilty. So this isn't a story about how forgiveness is ignoring guilt. But grace shows up, this unmerited favor shows up in the midst of our guilt and changes the way we deal with it. Forgiveness begins with grace through a process. And notice that it's not like the rest of the process is all spelled out before the story ends. Jesus doesn't say, go your way and sin no more because she's repented or because she's paid for her crime or there's been anything like reward or punishment here for anybody in the story. That whole thing is forgiveness. But before it even gets to that, it's just a word of grace and then go. Another thing about forgiveness in this story, besides knowing that it is a longer process that begins with grace, is that, and this might be hard to hear, this story doesn't actually make a whole lot of sense. Oh sure, we'd like to believe that you could get a group of people together in this world and you just have to say a rhetorical question to them, like, who's here without sin? And then, you know, they'll all get up and leave and everything will be better. We'd like to believe it. Personally, other than this story, I don't think I've ever seen it. What comes to my mind is a few years ago when there was that protest and then that counter protest and things got so heated and outrageous among people that there was that guy who actually drove his car into the crowd. The reality is is that when human beings get together and they start pointing fingers at each other, they start playing the blame game. They start saying, hey, this person's done something wrong. It's their fault. It needs to be fixed. Where's the justice? Things don't de-escalate. They escalate. Think about any protest you've ever watched. What is the purpose of people getting together in protest? Well, they want to call out an injustice. They want to find the numbers, they want to find a group, and by finding a group, finding that they're not alone in their thought of injustice, they get empowered to go and act on it. That can be a really great thing. Not every protest is bad, but it's not a tactic towards forgiveness because what people walk away from with a protest is the belief they are more right than ever. Forgiveness doesn't happen without some sort of confession, some sort of acknowledgement when Jesus says, who are you without sin, that the people, all of them, in their heads at least, confess to themselves, I'm not without sin. So it doesn't happen very often, if ever. What I have to give credit to in this story is that it's probably the elders. It's the elders who are already there, that were already listening to Jesus' teachings And they're the ones with wisdom who probably looked around at this situation and recognized the Pharisees are trying to trap him. This woman is being put on display in an unfair way. They are probably the ones who basically said, we just don't want to participate in this and walked away. But make no mistake, even though the crowds disperse, even though the Pharisees and the Sadducees left, the war is not over. Pharisees and the Sadducees lost the battle on this day, but they did not win the war. They are not giving up on the war. And to them, that's exactly what it is. That's the thing about getting into a crowd and being convinced you're more right. Now you have a battle. And more importantly than you have a battle, you have a war you want to win. But here's the most important thing to remember about stories of forgiveness in the Bible. And yes, it's a process... They don't always make a whole lot of sense, but they do make sense on this point. It's not about the woman. They point out her sin, but they're going after Jesus. They're using her for this battlefront, but the war is against Jesus. The war is against God. It's not about her. How many times in this world have you been the recipient of someone else's judgment. Was it ever really about you? Probably not. True judgment isn't becoming really about you. The the real conviction that you have to pay for your crimes isn't about you. It's about people feeling like the world isn't making sense. That God ain't acting right. And they're going to fix it and demand that it be fixed. Another story, the prodigal son, one of my favorites. I have said so many times, this needs to be the back of your hand story. Talk about a bright golden line. The prodigal son, this is the gospel. So if you remember, probably the the most famous parts of the story is that there is a man with two sons. One son has decided that he wants his inheritance early. And so as he wants his inheritance early, He, he, he says to his father, give me half of everything you have. And he goes on his way and he spends it all in foolish living and by the time that he's wasted it all and he's sleeping at nights with the pigs in a pig pen, he finally decides to go home. He has this whole speech in his head about what he's going to say to his father when he gets there, how he's going to repent and try and beg for forgiveness. But before the father hears any of it, the father yells, kill the fatted calf, the lost have been found. That's That's the first and probably the more beautiful part of the story is we all understand, hopefully, that God is that Father. No matter how much dishonor you throw his way, no matter how much you've offended him, he will always be happy that you come home. Forgiveness, by the way, the first part of this story is Understanding that forgiveness is reconciliation. Whatever else any religious authority has ever told you forgiveness means, however you've ever tried to understand it in your own life, to God, to Scripture, forgiveness is reconciliation. The Father and the Son were separate from each other, and now they are back together. There is a party being thrown, and they are there in the room together. God is a fool for love. And no matter how much dishonor gets thrown his way, he'll throw even more at it if it means that he gets to be with his children. That's the first beautiful part of it. But remember, there's a second part. Here's how it goes. Now the other brother, the elder son, was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And he replied, your brother has come Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then the brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but the brother answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? The first part of this story, I think, exemplifies, again, forgiveness is reconciliation. It's bringing us back in. This fool of a father, the foolishness of God that goes beyond any dishonor to welcome him home, then gives rise to this part of the story. Of another brother. Who again, God ain't acting right. This isn't the way the world is supposed to work. And it's not about the prodigal son. There's no other scene between the two brothers confronting each other. No, this is the other brother confronting the father for not acting right. His battlefront is his little brother, his war is with his dad expectations about the way the world is supposed to work, the way his father is supposed to manage things and run things, and it's not being met to his satisfaction. There's no confession in him about his expectations, about why he thought that he should be the one who receives more. No confession on his part and why he isn't just happy like the father is, that he's home, just the anger that comes with deciding not to go in the party, forgiveness is reconciliation. The prodigal son and the father are in a room parting together, and the other brother chooses not to go in to reject forgiveness. One more story this morning. This one comes from the Old Testament. Another one of my favorites. Again, it's God's greatest hits. The story of Jonah. So the prophet Jonah gets told by God to go to the land of Nineveh, which is this wicked, horrible place, and God is going to cast judgment on it, God says. And so he's sending the prophet to go and say that to them, and Jonah refuses to go because, and maybe we think it would be because he doesn't want to be the agent of condemnation in this world. No, the problem is is that Jonah says right from the beginning, you're too gracious I'll go and I'll say these things, but they won't get what they deserve because you, God, are gracious and you'll forgive them. And so Jonah goes the other way. We get that big fish part of the story. From the belly of the whale, Jonah prays a prayer of thanks, thankfulness towards God and so he gets spit out. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches and lo and behold, what happens with the Ninevites? We get another part of the process of forgiveness. They repent. They repent. They repent. And then, God forgives them. And then this is what Jonah says at this moment. "'O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country, that this is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning? For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing.'" I just love it because those words are often spoken in the Psalms. They're, they're spoken all over the place in the Psalms. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And typically we say them as words of assurance, Jonah says them as an accusation. Oh Lord, I told you you would do this. Oh Lord, please take my life for me for it's better for me to die than to live. And basically that's the end of the story. Jonah, Jonah leaves the city. Jonah is a parable. And it's kind of the counter to what happens with Jesus with that crowd and the woman who's caught in adultery. We see in the crowd an appropriate faithful response to recognizing their sin. And what we get from Jonah is that kind of uh, don't do that lesson. Don't be like him. He runs every which way to avoid God's graciousness towards forgiveness. And even when forgiveness is fully seen through and there is repentance and even penance on the side of the Ninevites, he can't live with it. He would rather die. God ain't acting right. When God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, God ain't acting right. But the problem's not the Ninevites, is it? They just became the battleground for Jonah to wage his war against God. For God not acting right, and for the world not being the way Jonah wants it to be. So how about you? This is the through line, right? In the Bible stories, stories about forgiveness, as we take it all in, the one person getting judged in your life, if you've been that person, you need to always remember this. As hard as it may be to get, it's not about you. No matter what you've done, the person that's standing in judgment of you, the person that's super angry at you, the one who demands that you be punished for your sins and for your crimes, it's not about you. You're guilty. God would be gracious. He calls them to be gracious towards you. Their inability to do that is not about you. It's about God. God ain't acting right. And they're trying to bring it to God and to you about God. To blame you. But their fight is with God. The other side of the equation that I think we all probably have to deal with is that we are not always just the ones who receive judgment. We are also the ones who give judgment. We've all been a Pharisee. We've all been the other brother. We've all been Jonah. A few things about that. Just remember that we are trying to put on the clothing of Christ so that we become. So in that becoming, here's just a few things I'm going to close with that I hope that you will hold on to. Number one, drop the righteous indignation. God is not impressed. So often people want to be prophets. They want to say, well, I'm angry on God's behalf. I have to speak into this evil in the world because that is what God wants me to do. And you know what? I'm just more and convinced more and more that God is not impressed. Because Jonah was a prophet and he still got being a prophet wrong when he couldn't forgive. The truth is, the stories of the Bible give us more indications that we are the Pharisee, that we are the other brother, than we are ever a prophet. And we're a prophet. We are not blameless. We still do things incorrectly. We still preach incorrectly. Drop the righteous indignation. Instead, here's number two, I would suggest deal with God and deal with yourself. There is a reason we confess every week in our worship services. I hope... uh, That most congregations, most Christians still do that in public worship and in their private lives and encourage it. I see it less and less because people are like, oh, we don't want to talk about sin and we don't want to talk. If you can't confess, you can't start dealing with the actual war. The war is not about them. The war is about you and your expectations about God when you decide that God ain't acting right. So deal with yourself and deal with God. Be confessional. Dig into your own expectations and your own motivations. And and even when that falls short, lament and pray. But bring it to the actual person who earned the right to hear you say, this isn't right. It isn't just that other human being. It's God. Bring it to God. And the last one this morning I will say, is this on the road to being able to put on those clothes and to them really becoming ours through compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness on the road to being a forgiving people? Don't forget that Paul also emphasized one other word, and it was thankfulness. All right, the whole second half of what I read. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the story of Jonah, there's only one moment When you can actually look at Jonah and see him not just as a cautionary tale, but he is the one who's actually doing the right thing. He's supposed to, he's acting like the prophet God wants him to be. It's when he's in the belly of the whale, and his prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving. It's what the other brother can't do is recognize all the blessings that he's already had by being be able to be with his father, by having reconciliation be built into his relationship with the father already. He's not seeing that part of what's going on. And really, in the end, what, it, what is it that drives the elders to walk away from this moment with Jesus and the woman And the Pharisees. It's not just, I think, that they know that they are also those who are without sin. They finish the equation of forgiveness, which is they do have sin, and they've received grace, and that means that they have moved through forgiveness, and it makes them grateful. They can extend the beginning of that process to the woman because they have received it themselves, because they have gratitude. For all the ways that the world is wrong and God ain't acting right, there are a million more ways that God is acting right, and you will be grateful for it. So spend time on your thankfulness. That will help you put on the clothes, and that will help your becoming. I, for one, am going to go home this afternoon and plant some Easter lilies. I didn't get any Easter lilies myself at Easter, but I went to Walmart the next week to buy some stuff, and buy some groceries, and guess what? Nobody else bought any Easter lilies either. So they were all on clearance, and I got this great deal on six Easter lilies, and they've been in my window ever since. And now that the blossoms are falling off, I'm going to go and plant them in the yard. I don't know if they'll survive. But today the sky is beautiful. The sun is out. It's finally warm. It stopped raining for a minute. I can't be with you on this Sunday morning that you're watching this. But that means that Saturday afternoon, Sunday, I can have Sabbath. I can focus on all the things that have gone wrong. I didn't get to celebrate Easter the way I wanted. The blossoms are falling off the Easter lilies already. That it's been rainy and cold and dark. And that I can't use Saturday to get ready for Sunday. I can look at all the stuff that makes life bad. Or I can recognize... There's a beautiful afternoon ahead of me, mixing it up with God's creation under the sun, in the warmth, hoping that new life will grow. I'm grateful for that. Let thankfulness be the way that you live, and it will help you put on the clothing of Christ and to become. God ain't acting right. We should be thankful for that. Let us pray.